Well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you on the best day of the week, Sunday, where we get to gather, we get to rest in Christ, we get to open His Word. A special warm welcome if you're here because your kids dragged you along to the kids' party. You're our guest. We're so glad you can be with us. We are in a series on First Peter. Uh, First Peter is a letter at the back of the Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, not to worry, it'll be up on the screen for you, and we're going to carry on uh, in this letter. This is a letter written by Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, his appointed spokesperson, and he was commissioned by Jesus to represent him. And he's writing this letter to scattered and persecuted Christians who were living at the time in what is now uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, In the lead up to Easter, uh, I really feel this passage, these verses we're going to be reading from are really timely for preparing our hearts. So we're going to dive right into our passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 10 to 12 and then invite the Lord to meet with us this morning. Friends, this is the word of God to us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. The Apostle Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been appointed to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord God, what a sweet moment to be gathered together as your people less than one week out from Easter and Good Friday. Lord, we are so thrilled to have this moment this morning to pause as we consider the cross, to sit at your feet and to hear from you. So we invite you, calm Holy Spirit, Fill our hearts and our minds with the glories of Jesus through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in an incredibly beautiful city, but it's easy to forget that that's the case. I remember I had not long moved back from living overseas in Indonesia, and I'd moved into a friend's place in Chatswood. And I remember very distinctly catching for the first time the train from Chatswood Station all the way into Redfern, where I was studying at the time. And I remember sitting on the top carriage as the train approached the Sydney Harbour Bridge and staring out in awe at the beautiful scene before me, the, the beautiful harbour and, and the lights in the early hours of the morning and the Sydney Opera House in view as we passed over the bridge. I remember thinking to myself that it was such a beautiful scene. And yet, all around me on that early morning train were people in suits, with their laptops on their laps, 
who didn't even look up from their screens at all. See, it's easy to spot a tourist in Sydney, isn't it? It's easy to spot someone who's brand new to this place. It's such a beautiful place. You can spot the tourist walking through the city, looking up at the sky, at the beautiful buildings, and at the the parks and the beautiful scenery, taking photographs. You can spot them like me on the train, pressed up against the glass on the window, looking out at the bridge as we pass it by in our beautiful harbor. And yet time has a way of making spectacular things lose their shine, doesn't it? Time has a way of taking things and making what is incredible seem rather ordinary. The first time you held your partner's hand and how that felt to the low-grade irritation you feel about the mess now that has been left on the floor. The dream job you've always wanted and that first day walking around the office being shown your new desk to now find yourself dreaming of some time off and a break. The amazing new car that you had longed for and saved for that doesn't quite seem so amazing to you anymore. You don't even think about it. In fact, you're already thinking about the next upgrade. The holiday up the coast that you've spent all year anticipating, but now because we're on the 2nd of April, you can't even remember it. It seems that long ago, forgotten. You know, if you're here today and following Jesus, the truth is that the exact same thing can be said of knowing and following Christ as well. And if you can remember the moment you first put your trust in Jesus and perhaps for you the profound joy and thanksgiving that you felt in that moment that you couldn't believe that he would have ever loved you in the way that he has. Perhaps even grasping the cross for the first time, seeing all that he has done for you and being moved to tears at the thought of it. Now possibly years later, finding yourself with your passion lost and somewhat unmoved by the cross. Well, here's the truth. Sometimes we just need to slow down enough to see with fresh eyes what has become overly familiar to us. Now, I was thinking about that just this week. Uh, Riley and I were in Melbourne on Monday and Tuesday, and uh, we, we got home late on Tuesday night. I arrived at Hornsby Station. I looked at the Ubers list. They were all too far away and too expensive at that time. So I thought, I'm just going to walk it. And it was kind of like just sort of like, you know, misting a little bit of rain. And I walked up over the bridge at Hornsby Station and into Westfield at night. And I, 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 I just don't ever remember it looking so beautiful. All the lights covering all the trees all the way through the center street walking down through Hunter Lane, Hunter Street, all the way down, and just thinking, our neighborhood is actually incredibly beautiful. And I felt myself praying as I was walking home on the, on the walk home from the station and, and, and just thanking God for living here and praying for people in our neighborhood and realizing that with little kids, we, we rarely have the opportunity to walk anywhere at the moment and, 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 and it just seems like forever since I've ever just stopped to do something as simple as appreciate the place in which we live. 
You know, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of this message is The Heart of Easter. I've got three points. Uh, the longest is the first point. It's the majority of the message, so, so don't panic uh, when we seem like we're going to run out of time. But one hope for us this morning, really, which is this, that in the lead up to Easter, we would just slow down enough to see and to treasure the precious message of the cross that we find in our passage. That's what I want us to do this morning. I just want us to slow down and appreciate freshly the treasure that is found at the foot of the cross with Easter just around the corner. So let's dive right into point number one for our time together this morning. Point number one, which I've entitled, A Word That's Lost Its Meaning. You know, words are easily and quickly stripped of their meaning. Think with me. Think about the word awesome. The word awesome, it means to fill with awe. It means to be extremely impressive or daunting. And yet when we say that that pizza was awesome, we don't mean that that pizza filled us with awe. We just mean it was tasty. Amazing. To cause great surprise or wonder. To be astonishing. And yet when we say the weekend was amazing, we don't mean the weekend filled us with wonder. We simply mean that we enjoyed it. Well, I put to you that the same can be said of one of the first words we stumble across in our passage this morning. Read again with me the first three words of our passage from verse 10. The Apostle Peter says, Concerning this salvation. See, salvation, it's another one of these words. We hear it so often, but what does it actually even mean? Uh, According to the Oxford Dictionary, I looked it up this week, salvation means the preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. I think when we think about the word salvation, it might conjure up images of being rescued from death, like uh, Liam Neeson in one of those Taken films, or James Bond perhaps, or being on death row. I was reading this week about a Victorian called Cam Gillespie, who just recently was sentenced to death in Guangzhou. But for the rest of us who are not on death row, the word salvation seems irrelevant. Now, salvation from what? I mean, maybe in a global kind of sense, like maybe salvation from nuclear war. I mean, there's definitely a lot of talk about that in the news or uh, from environmental disaster. There's a group um, I keep pumping into, actually, called Extinction Rebellion. I don't know if you've seen their stickers around. Uh, They say that they're a civil disobedience movement in an attempt to halt mass extinction and minimize the risk of social collapse. So maybe from an environmental disaster we we, we need salvation. But most commonly in our culture, we use the term salvation ironically, like to be saved from a difficult conversation or to be saved from a certain government like the Morrison government or the Dan Andrews government or to be saved from a difficult workplace or from the ATO or something like that. You see, in our educated and prosperous island on the other side of the world, we actually feel very safe. See, we're probably also aware that religious people tend to talk a lot about salvation. And there's a sense that it's probably associated with maybe fire and brimstone preaching, a kind of turn or burn message or something like that. But it seems impossible to understand. I mean, how could we possibly need salvation? 
we're good people and we live in a safe country, right? What is the salvation that Peter is talking about in our passage? We're going to pause and look at this issue of salvation. And my hope is to convince you, to convince you that we all need salvation, religious or not. We all need rescue on three different levels alluded to in our letter. And the first clue we have to understand what this salvation Peter is referring to are the three words we've already read in our passage. Let's read them another time. Verse 10 begins with this. Concerning this salvation. This. It means that we've walked into a conversation midway. And we need to look back in order to understand what Peter is referring to by this salvation. Well, if we turn back to verse 3 in our passage, we read the following. In verse 3, Peter says, He has, that's God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, or perhaps better, an expectation of living through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has given us a spiritual new birth, Peter says, and the result is an expectation of living or life because Jesus has come back from the dead. We read on in verse 5 about this expectation of life or inheritance is, according to Peter, by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This expectation of life to come is being kept safe for the purpose of salvation at the end of this age, Peter says. Reading on verse 9, he says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of what? Your souls. That word simply means your life essence, your, your life itself. Put another way, the outcome of our trust in God will be, according to Peter, the rescue of our lives. See, this salvation Peter is talking about is salvation from death achieved through Jesus being raised from the dead. And that would have been so deeply meaningful to this scattered and eclectic, persecuted group of Christians he is writing to who didn't feel at home, who were looking for and being told that the best is yet to come because there is life beyond the grave. But I put to us this morning that's also deeply meaningful to us as 21st century Australians. You see, the first thing we need salvation from, according to Peter, is we need salvation from death. Uh, The atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel puts our situation like this. Uh, Tom Nagel says this. He says, Even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down or collapse, and all traces of your efforts will vanish. All efforts of your efforts, evidence of your efforts, traces of your efforts will vanish. I put to us that not many of us, or probably none of us, are going to write a great work of literature that will be read thousands of years from now. And yet, even if you did, it would soon be a forgotten blip on a meaningless universe. See, Nagel's point is that if this life is all there is, everything in our lives, even if we achieve unparalleled fame, is ultimately meaningless. 
you know, as our society has become more secular, there's this increasing fear of dying. It doesn't come across as people panicking about dying, obviously so, but it comes out in things like diets and lifestyle change and fitness regimes and medicines. We want to live for as long as possible. Majority of my family has recently given up on alcohol, uh, which makes family gatherings for me a little bit awkward, but the reason is they're worried about their health. Now, I'm not saying that all these things are bad things. It's good to be concerned about our health, but behind them often in our culture is a fear of dying. Because this life is all we got. We also hide away death from public view. Our culture is, is, is increasingly about this life being all there is. And so we hide it away, this reminder of the meaninglessness of life. In our culture, in fact, the best attempt we have to comfort ourselves in secular thinking is to kind of think like that classic Disney film, The Lion King. I don't want you to laugh, but I think The Lion King probably encapsulates our best efforts to comfort ourselves about this bleak reality. You'll be familiar with the song, The Circle of Life. It's the circle of life. It's this idea that we die, but we decompose and we become fertilizer for the flowers. And the flowers feed the bees and the bees feed the animals. And so we remain connected with this world and this life. But inside we know that the reality is far more bleak. Inside we know that death is the loss of everything we love. Death means the loss of our experience of beauty in this world. It means the end of our intellects. It means the loss of all of our possessions. It means the loss of our children, our spouses, our friends, our family. Inside we know death is horrific. And deep down inside, we feel, all of us, that death is not natural. It is an abomination. It's profoundly wrong. And the Bible agrees with the deep sense we have that death is not a natural part of life, but an unwelcome intruder. The Bible teaches that God is... A beautiful union of three. He is a father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. He is a loving relationship and the source of all that is love. You know, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passes by Moses on Mount Sinai and says to him, This of himself, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He made everything and he made us in his image to represent him. God made the first people to know him and to love him and to serve him and he sustained them there in the garden through the tree of life that they might live forever with him. And he made us to have the same love for him and others as he has in his very being to sacrificially love and serve others. And yet the Bible teaches that the harmony between God and man was short-lived. We rejected our role as his precious servants and embraced self-rule instead. And so we read the following in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says of the man and the woman, having turned their back on God, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
Adam and Eve rather than in beautiful relationship with God, hiding from God. A relationship broken. Relationally cut off from God, the selfless love of God's own heart replaced with an obsessive focus on ourselves. We turned in on ourselves. You see, according to the Bible, we need more than just salvation from death. We also need salvation from ourselves. You know, an honest evaluation of our own lives reveals that we are not the people we know we should be. You know, there's something beautiful about a person who lives for the sake of others, who lives their life to kind of love and serve others. I wonder if you've ever met a person like that, a person who almost forgets themselves. Such is their heart for other people. And yet the truth is, we don't live like this. Cut off from God, a kind of spiritual death has descended on humanity. And what is replaced? This kind of love is actually selfishness. A selfishness that is not a minor issue, but is kind of at the heart of everything wrong with this world. Behind every argument is selfishness. Behind every instance of abuse is selfishness. Behind every murder, behind every war, behind every instance of greed and every instance of dishonesty is our selfishness. And yet God's kindness, He removed humanity from His garden and He cursed the world and death became our experience as kind of a living picture of our internal state. And because we're cut off from the selfless love of God, the result is we intuitively put ourselves first. And this, I put to us this morning, makes us capable of the worst kinds of evil. Uh, I was reflecting this week on an article I read uh, many years ago. It's a famous article. It was written by a lady called Hannah Ardent, who is, uh, was a well-known philosopher. And she wrote it for the New Yorker magazine in 1963. And the article is entitled Eichmann in Jerusalem uh, with the subtitle Adolf Eichmann and the Banality of Evil. Uh, Adolf Eichmann, you may have heard him before, he was one of the chief architects of the Holocaust. Uh, He drafted and came up with the final solution for the extermination of Jews. And Adam found Eichmann during his trial in Jerusalem to be an ordinary, rather bland bureaucrat who, in her words, was neither perverted nor sadistic, but, and this is a quote, terrifyingly normal. You see, what Hannah Arendt found about Eichmann is that his main motive wasn't some hatred for the Jewish people, but simply to advance his career in the Nazi bureaucracy. His main motivation, it was simply selfishness. You know, the truth is, we probably won't ever commit a major crime in our lives. But we carry the potential. The issue is not that we lack the potential, but we won't likely, in our lifetime, face the unique combination of circumstances that would lead us to do it. 
And yet the beautiful hope of our passage is this in verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to an expectation of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The message of the Bible is we need a new spiritual birth. We need to be connected again to the heartbeat of God himself. We need our inner wants and desires to be changed, to love others, and to end our self-obsession. You see, no one is born a Christian. All require conversion by the Holy Spirit to be born again. So firstly, we need salvation from death. We need salvation from ourselves. But thirdly, and finally, we also need salvation from God himself. You know, more than simply needing physical and spiritual salvation, the Bible teaches that we need salvation from God himself. You see, there's something incredibly tragic when a husband or wife betrays their spouse. To betray any person is a tragedy. We're made in God's image, therefore we're precious and loved by God. It's especially tragic in marriage. Because marriage is the depth of love and intimacy that ought be, in a way, unparalleled. Marriage in the Bible is though just a dim reflection of the relationship that ought to exist between God and us. See, God is our maker. He's infinitely more valuable than any person. And therefore, betrayal of God is a far greater betrayal than betrayal of any other person. And the result is that we all stand guilty of a wrong infinitely greater than any act of adultery. We have betrayed the one true living God. You know, that passage in Exodus chapter 34, I only read the first half of it. The, the Lord, as he passes by Moses, says, the Lord, it says, as the Lord passed by him, the Lord, the Lord, says God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, the world is filled with injustice. And most of it, has no hope of ever being truly fixed. I mean, how can you ever make right the destruction of someone's life? What could possibly make up for it? You can't. But there is a great hope. And the hope is that God will not allow any person to escape His justice. But the problem that creates is... A huge problem, not just for people like Vladimir Putin or Adolf Eichmann, but for all of us. You see, the real question to evaluate our goodness is not how do we compare with those around us, but have we loved the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind? Or have we betrayed Him? You know, for us here in the North Shore, this is a surprising message because we don't think of ourselves as people in need of saving. But we need saving from death and the loss of everything we love. We need saving from ourselves and our self-obsession. And we need saving from God and His right punishment for our betrayal. But we don't want to just sit and linger here on our need for salvation. This is merely the, 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 the black cloth that exists to appropriately display the beautiful diamond that is to come. And so we want to move on from a word that is stripped of its meaning to point number two, the most precious message in the world. 
You see, understanding our natural condition now, we can begin to truly understand the beauty of the cross. Let's read again the first two verses of our passage this morning. Verse 10 says, Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You know, the Old Testament prophets were acutely aware of their need for salvation. Salvation from death. Salvation from themselves. Salvation from God. And they spoke about the grace, the kindness that was to come, the undeserved mercy, the favor that was to come. God had in fact prompted them to go on a quest to find out how and when God would save his people. You know, I wonder if you've ever been on a spiritual quest to find purpose and meaning in life. This week we were listening to Harry who was sharing something of his story and how he'd suddenly felt this sense of one day I'm going to stand before God and have to give an account for my life. And it led him on this journey that first took him to Islam and then from Islam took him to Christ and becoming a Christian. In a similar way, the, the, the triune God sent his Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit of Christ himself, to the prophets who went out searching for the salvation. And they predicted through the Holy Spirit a coming king to save them. A coming king who was unfathomably glorious. And firstly, God revealed to the prophets that he would send them not just any king, but a divine king. A Christ. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read the following. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a promise that is. A prince would be born. A child who would be called Mighty God. I was thinking about that this week. And a holiday Charlotte and I took about five years ago to the South Island of New Zealand. We went to to, uh, Mount Cook. I don't know if anyone's ever traveled there or it's known as Aoraki. It's 3,724 meters high. It's stunningly breathtaking. And I remember just sitting there and looking at it and just the tiny specks of cars driving by. Incredible beauty. And I was thinking about this passage this morning. That coming would be a king, a child, who made it all. I looked up this week, the universe is 94 billion light years across. That's a distance I can't even get my head around how big that is. The earth is estimated to be 4.5 billion years old. That, that means that if you live to 100, that's 45 million of your lifetimes. And we live on just one planet 
orbiting around one star out of 100 billion stars in our galaxy. Out of the estimated 2 trillion galaxies in our universe. You know, I was thinking about this week and I kind of tried to do the maths on what would be a comparison. If every galaxy is the same as ours out of those 2 trillion in terms of 100 billion stars, then take every grain of sand in this entire earth and each grain of sand symbolizes or stands for 50,000 other stars across this universe. Uncomprehendably big. And for all eternity, this God, our God, the maker of it all, had existed as a loving union, a father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. And yet he would send his son to be clothed in flesh, to become a baby in order to save us. Incomprehensibly glorious. But secondly, God not only revealed to the prophets that he would send a divine king, but that this anointed king, this son of his, would suffer. We're so familiar with this point, we can struggle to see how profound it is that the divine son would come to earth to suffer for us. I mean, how many of us are so familiar that in this moment, you kind of feel like you want to yawn or perhaps even to switch off, perhaps even to snooze. There is glory here. Verse 12 says that what Christ would suffer is so precious that even angels long to look at it. You know, the year Uzziah died, uh, the year 733 BC to be precise, nearly 740 years Before Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah wrote one of the most detailed prophecies about this Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Inspired by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us 
peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the Lord had promised his salvation would come through a suffering servant king. He would be unimpressive in visible beauty or majesty. Verses 1 and 2. He would be rejected by his very own people. He would be thought of as being abandoned and cursed by God. Verses 3 and 4. And his suffering would be as a substitute. Notice what he took. He took our griefs. He took our sorrows. He took our transgressions. He took our iniquities. Notice what he did. He bore. He carried. He was esteemed not. He was stricken. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was chastised. He was wounded. It was all laid on him. And as the Lord Jesus hung upon that cross... God the Son, who made the trees that formed the cross, who shaped the very hill on which they stood, who had knit together those who mocked and crucified Him, who had made 50,000 stars for every grain of sand in the world. He bleeds for us. And God the Father pours upon Him the fullness of His anger for all of our sins. The selfishness and the greed. The anger and the, dist- and the dishonesty. The betrayal of God and others. And He screams in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet love compels Him to stay. And the purpose? That God and man might be reconciled once more through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. What amazing and unspeakable glory is contained in the sufferings of Christ. No wonder those angels long to look. And God revealed to the prophets that they would not even live to see this day. They longed to see when he would come. What perhaps better circumstances or time which this king would come. And they found that it was not to be in their day. And the glorious truth, friends, is what they longed for to happen has come. We are the most privileged recipients of all. It has been announced to us. A message so precious, the heavenly hosts look on to see him suffer for us. Why would the eternal son suffer for them? This is love unspeakable, they must have said. Oh, may we see him suffer for them. Here's a question I want us to think about this morning, friends. Is that how you feel about the message of the cross? Just delight to consider what he did for us. Do you feel an overwhelming sense of joy that leads you to want to share that news with others? Friends, I 
I hope it is. And yet I feel, I believe, burdened by the Lord that he wants to stir our affections for Christ this morning. The truth is that for most of us, a deep love and affection for the Lord and the cross, it's not where we live. And so I want to end with just our third and, and final point, which is just simply this, how to make the most of this Easter. You know, we've got a beautiful gift, church, uh, this morning, this week, on the Easter weekend to stop and to focus on Christ. It's, it's like an annual gift that we get to pause and think about the cross each and every year. The purpose of Easter is the Lord Jesus. It's all about Him. And yet we can have calendars so filled of activity, we miss the opportunity to abide in Him. And so I just really have one really simple application for us. Just one simple application, one burden for us this morning together as a church. And it's simply this, that we just slow down. That's it. That, that, that's all. That we would simply slow down. You know, walking home from the train station on late Tuesday night, that was my reala- realization. I, I rarely make time for something so simple. Just to slow down and go for a walk and just look at our neighborhood and pray. And so the question I want us to leave with this morning is simply this. How could you make a little extra time to slow down and enjoy Christ this Easter? How could you make just just a little extra time to slow down enough to enjoy Christ just a little bit more this Easter? I've been thinking about that this week, and I'm just thinking of some ideas. I mean, maybe there's something you could just cancel. A project that you were hoping to get to, maybe you just cancel that. A social event that maybe you could just cancel. An outing that you'd hope for, maybe you could just cancel it to, to spend time with Christ. Maybe instead of Netflix this week, maybe you could read the, the story of the cross together or with a friend or as a family. Maybe you could just do what I did and just like walk to the station or home from the station instead of driving and, and, and pray and meditate on the cross. Maybe you could just turn the radio off on the car or in the car or at home and, and play songs of praise or something like that. So you can just sing songs to meditate on the cross. Maybe, maybe you could share your testimony this week with someone and share with them what Easter means to you personally. Maybe you could fast or give up a meal to ask God to give you fresh delight in the cross. But whatever it is for you, how could we slow down and enjoy a little bit more of Christ this Easter? Friends, this Easter, would we not be like commuting city workers when it comes to the gospel, focused on our work and unaware of the beauty all around us? But would we be like tourists with our faces pressed against the glass, staring at what the Lord Jesus did for us 
at Calvary. Friends, would you pray as we close our time together? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much for the profound beauty contained in the cross and of you, our God and Savior. We thank you so much for the unspeakable glory of what you did for us upon that cross. Lord, we will never understand the depth of love that drove you there, Lord God. And Lord, we pray that we would this Easter find moments in time to simply enjoy the fullness of the wonderful gift we have in and through our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.